Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb, and we are in the midst of the Zendikar Rising Championship. I had to look up at my notepad to make sure that I read that correctly. You nailed it. I have it actually open on the monitor in front of me because we have had some difficulties with the names of these tournaments recently. I, I will own that. That's on us. But good preparation on both of our parts this time to absolutely know what tournament we're talking about. Yeah, and to be fair, this one's not that hard, right? That's true. Uh, This is basically a pro tour. It is only 184 people, so uh, a little bit on the smaller end, at least compared to previous pro tours. But this is uh, dual, standard, and historic, depending on when this podcast goes up. I mean, the tournament's going to be happening all weekend, so you should be able to catch some of it. And we wanted to wait to record this podcast until... We had the deck lists because that seems like an important part to actually making relevant content rather than having a cast that goes up on Friday and we don't know what a lot of the players are playing. Yeah, it's an awkward timing. I'll own up to that because ideally we would have loved to do this as a preview show to kind of be like your viewership guide for this event. Uh, But deck lists just don't get released in that timing window. And I don't know why. Like, let us advertise your event for you for free. We're, we're happy to do it. We want to talk about it anyway. You know, I think these events could use a little hype right now. We're transitioning to this new system and this new way of doing quote unquote pro tours. So that's just a little, little free advice going forward. Give us a chance as content creators to hype up your event. And the best way to do so is with these deck lists for sure. Yeah, I think the rationale behind it is, you know, fairness for the players. And yeah, I'm, I, I don't I'm buy on. It. I'm on board with that, but at the same time, I don't think that this is necessarily the best way to go about it. So the argument is that like some players will have more time to like prepare if you give the deck list on Thursday as opposed to Friday morning or. Right. I mean, how is it not fair if everyone has it? Well, because some people might have other commitments, right? I agree with you, but isn't that just kind of the nature of what we do? Like, is it fair that some of the people participating in this tournament have full-time jobs and some only play magic as a profession? Like, there's always going to be divides and you're never, there's no such thing as true fairness, right? There's never going to be a merit test when it comes to a magic tournament. So I I am more for making those type of concessions to improve the product rather than like, arbitrary lines of fairness because you just can't make it fair it's never going to actually happen i so i agree i agree with you there if you decide to throw all that out the window and then you know maybe allow players to kind of like hype up the event uh by either making content or maybe you see you know the players who are playing in the events like stream their deck list leading up to it or whatever to kind of drive hype i think that is a net good thing but you're also, I think, punishing people who are more willing to submit kind of like off the cuff deck lists because, you know, for example, like going through like the standard deck lists, it's like, well, if there's just like a bunch of gruel, well, maybe I'm just not going to spend time testing against this. But if there's like a team who showed up with something interesting and potentially very good, you probably test against that, right? And then maybe right. it's more unfair to them, or at least it disincentivizes people from taking risks and registering things like that, which would be a net negative, I think. That's fair. That's a fair argument and a good point against it. I just kind of feel like we're getting the the worst of both worlds right now because like 
you do have to submit your deck lists earlier. I don't know when the exact cutoff for deck list submission for this event was. I think it was last week. Like it's either week. Sunday or Monday, right? It's like normally it's like a week before the event. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where it was for this. But so you're missing some time and like some technology evolution in the deck list. And it's not as bad as it was like last season where decks would be two to three weeks old sometimes. Uh, so it's certainly not anything like that. But you're also not getting the freshest deck list possible. So once you're like, okay, we're going to do early submission, feels like you need to find ways to do as much as you can with that. And I agree with you. I think they're a good promotional tool, but whatever. Yeah, that, I, that's that's another thing I don't get is like, why lock people in super early? I mean, even like the Pro Tours were just like submit the day of, right? And in yeah. this case where it's like all digital and everything and they're not really doing anything with it, I don't really understand why it's like, I would submit this a week early. You know, it should. My, my read has always been to make these like infographics that we have and, you know, get the deck lists in order. And once they went up, they, they are there. They're in They're in order. They're all downloadable. I, I actually checked if that works. It feels like it only works about 50% of the time. But still, I, I think there is some merit to having preparation time. It's just you can you can do more with that preparation time than you're presently doing. Yeah, def- definitely agree with that. And then certainly like once you have all that stuff set up, which shouldn't take a week to produce, then you should be able to do more things with it. But right. Anyway, we have mostly been talking about historic because standard was not really relevant for a lot of people, uh, except for those like playing in these events or like playing in SCG events and stuff like that. It was more about, uh, for me at least, you know, shiny new historic toys and, it looked like standard had kind of settled into a spot where there wasn't going to be a whole lot of innovation, but that has proven to be like very, very false. Yeah. Hard, hard false on that one. And I, I was right there with you. I, f- I felt the same way about standard and, you know, I've enjoyed our time with historic, but we, we have missed a lot of narrative and I, I say we've missed it. I've been aware, like I, I've actually been writing almost exclusively about standard and I've been focused on, new decks and the evolution of the format. And like you said, a lot of stuff going on. So if you rely only on the Arena Decklist podcast for your news about Magic, I, I think it's going to be a bit of a surprise when we talk about what's going on. Although the metagame breakdown surprised me because it actually looks like I would have expected to look a couple of weeks ago. And I think things should have moved a little bit further along because there have been a bunch of innovations. And certainly there are players who are playing those innovative new decks not as many as I would have thought. And there's some decks that I think have kind of been outmoded that are still very present in this tournament. Yeah, I think Gruel Adventures is still going to be good no matter how you slice it. Like these these new decks are definitely good decks, but I don't, I don't think that it's there's been enough innovation to just get Gruel out of the format completely. One of the decks I think is like is probably the case, which is Demir Rogues, where... Looking at this metagame breakdown, like there's not a lot of stuff that I would want to bring rogues against, but it's still like a pretty prevalent portion of the tournament. Yeah. If I'm picking out good good matchups here for rogues, it's kind of like slim pickings. But the nature of that deck is like the classic 45% deck where you eke out some wins against everyone and you feel really smart while you're doing it because you've had to put together chip damage and countered exactly the right spell because you only have so many resources and all your timings were perfect and you made the right decision every turn and you know people love that style of deck so 
I get why the representation is so high. I, I certainly enjoy playing rogues a lot. It feels like old magic in a lot of ways, particularly a call out to like Lorwyn era fairies for sure. But I agree with you. Not a lot of good matchups left for rogue in the format. Yeah, and I, I'm that person. I'm exactly that person that you're talking about where it's like that sort of gameplay appeals to me. And I played a, a lot of rogues when, you know, the, the format was first starting out, maybe for like the first month and a half or so. And when all of these green decks started popping up, I I was doing the things that you said, Brian. I was like eking out those those small edges and then still coming up like very, very short, like not not even like close to being competitive in the games against these green decks. So if I knew that the format was going to be like 40% green decks uh, at the top, then there's, there's just no way that I would have registered this deck. Like you have to try so hard to beat them. And even then you still fall short. Yeah. So there's some churn happening. Right. And I, I do think that you can argue there is some, vulnerability from some of the new strategies that have shown up to rogues if you build in a very specific way. Particularly, I think like counter magic can be good right now. But most of these rogues lists, because the green matchups are so terrible, they've done things like maxed out on low mages, which a fine card, very important in that matchup. But if you're trying to be like a counter spell heavy deck against things like, say, team or ramp, which we're going to talk about, or mono green food or demir control all these decks where i do think you can benefit from having a lot of counter spells you're just putting yourself in an awkward position because you've given up so many slots to even make the gruel matchup bearable so right and that's part of the problem too hard yeah pull too hard in too many directions right now for me to really advise anyone to play demir rogues yeah exactly tell me about mono green food because this this is a deck that uh, showed up maybe like the second week or so after uh, rotation. And it was like, okay, you know, this looks like it could be a competitor. And then people just kind of like stopped playing it. Maybe like the lists were not as refined or the metagame wasn't in as good of a place for it. But now it just seems to be like all over the place. And if I were playing in this tournament, that's probably what I would have played. Uh, it would have been on my short list. I, I, I agree with you that it's certainly one of the top two or three decks in the format. And the story behind it is odd because it was there. It, it was floating around. But I do think it was more about metagame than any actual flaws in the decks because the deck hasn't changed all that much from its current iterations to the previous iterations. I just think at that moment, it was about Urian and not about Urian as it's present in the metagame now because there is still a Urian deck. Going to talk about that in a moment. But the Urian decks then were all about generating cascaded advantages on the battlefield. And these were sizable advantages, the type of advantages that mono green food just couldn't play through. Like part of the reason why I found Selesnia Urian was that there was a lot of mono green food around. And that felt very, very easy from the Selesnia side because you had great answers to everything they tried to do in Elspeth Conqueror's Death. And you just outscaled them so dramatically that they really, their only way of participating in the game was through an aggressive draw. And they don't have that many aggressive draws. They can do it. And that's one of the draws to the deck is that they have this multiple facets to their game plan. But I, I think in general, they're more comfortable playing a longer game against something that floats more to the middle. They're, they're a big mid-range deck. There are bigger mid-range decks. But I think other factors in the metagame are holding down the biggest mid-range decks and making some space for this kind of weird hybrid to really find success in this moment. And I, I think that's the great thing about the standard is every time you come back to it, 
there's a different set of factors and this can change in a week. I mean, there's this whole tremendous backlog of decks that have risen to these situations in the past. So could there be another window for old school Urian decks? I mean, I even saw like an old school polymorph Jeskai Dream Trawler deck in <laughs> SCG results last week. And I'm like, well, you know, that technology is pretty outmoded, but you start to think about, well, if there's mono green food everywhere, maybe this actually does work again. So all of this stuff can cycle back around, but there's no question that given the shape of where the metagame was at, particularly like I think the shift to Gruel, mono green food was in a really good spot. Well, your phrasing was very specific. You said it would it would be in your top two or three choices. Mm-hmm. What What is your actual top choice? It, it is close between Teamer Ramp and Demir Control. I think my probable choice would be Demir Control based on maybe more play preference than anything else. And that is not, like, obviously I did not have to prepare for this event. So that is with smaller sample sizes than I would have given if I was participating in this event. But it does seem to be tunable, have answers for everything I want to contend against. And based on the metagame that did show up, I I think Demir Control is going to have a pretty successful weekend. Uh, So when you say ramp, like team or ramp, do you mean the adventures deck? Yes, Yeah, maybe I should be more specific about that. They've kind of merged, but you're right that its identity is more clearly focused around the adventures package than anything else. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have Beanstalk Giant no matter what. Some amount of Cultivates. I saw some players with like two. Some players went up to four. You're kind of topping out a Genesis Ultimatum. Like, you are doing rampy stuff, but this is very much the adventures deck that I remember, basically, where it's like, you're kind of doing your thing, accruing small edges, and then just killing people out of nowhere with like Beanstalk Giant into Obosh and stuff like that. Yeah, they have so many good game plans. That's what really stands out to me about this particular version of Teamer Adventures. And <laughs> how many versions of Teamer Adventures have we put up with now? And the whole history of Throne of Eldraine is wild. Like, we will look back on this era and what has happened and the decks that this set has inspired as unprecedented in magic history, without a doubt, between the Yoko era and then the Lucky Clover eras and just all of what we've put up with from Throne of Eldraine. It's so interesting to see where the deck is now, but this is a really, really good deck despite everything that's missing. And it, it plays so many game plans well. It has the attrition game plan on the back of Edgewall Innkeeper plus... The Great Henge, so it can outdraw really any deck once its engine starts going. But also now you have the simplest of aggressive draws based on just curving into Lovestruck Beast, which is fine. That does the job in many situations. But like you mentioned, you have Obosh, explosive aggro draws where it doesn't come up too often, but you're happy to have access to it. And then you just have combo kills where you just cast a Genesis Ultimatum and win on the spot because you have Terror of the Peaks in your deck. So there's all these different angles to play. And you even have some like control elements as well. Like obviously things like Brazen Bar or Bone Crusher Giant. They're just enough disruption for people who are trying to do pure beatdown things. And there is a little bit of that around. I saw some mono white aggro. Uh, there's like green white adventures. And occasionally you see some mono red, although there's almost none in this tournament. But there's a reason for that. And that's mostly Lovestruck Beast, honestly. Yeah, the green decks are very good at producing stoppers for small creatures. Yeah, Lovestruck Beast is the most played card in the standard portion of this tournament. You know, if you've been a red mage attacking into Lovestruck Beast, you you know that pain very well. Yeah, what are you, you going to do? Soul Seer that thing? 
not a reasonable solution to the problem. And uh, the fact is, there is just no reasonable solution to the problem. And it, it's strange to see that as like, I don't know, there's some argument like, is the most played card the best card in standard? I think the answer is often yes. And I think it's fair if you want to make the argument that Love Struck Beast is the best card in standard right now, because it does define what you can do. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's like the strongest card or anything, but it's just a matter of green having a lot of different engines. If Edgewell Innkeeper Shocker. didn't exist, for example. Shocker. Yeah, obviously, you know, green does everything. If Innkeeper didn't exist, you would see much less of that card. Uh, but it also works well with the Great Hand, which is another engine and blah, blah, blah. You know, so there's there's a lot of moving pieces that make it the most played card. But I definitely wouldn't say that it's like the most powerful card in the format or anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it shined in historic, even with or not historic, but maybe more pioneer than historic. But also it saw some presence in historic, but without Edgewall Innkeeper in those cases. So it's proven it can do it just on rate. I agree that its success in standard very much hinges on Edgewall Innkeeper, but as far as just raw power, it, it's pushed back to the older format. I, I mean, I think it's proven itself as a rate monster. It's just it's just that good. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I don't know. So I, I think, like, Teamer Teamer's a reasonable case uh, for deck I would play. The other one I agree with you, uh, rounding out the top three probably, is Demir Control, and... I was doing similar things throughout the format, just like trying to make Ugin work because Ugin beats up yeah. on a lot of these green decks. And this deck has extinction event, you know, like the, the like meme deck that I posted a while back was like the mono blue thing. And the Demir decks mostly kind of like resemble that where they have like maze mind tome, solemn Ugin, a lot of them are playing Urian, but also like, you know, having actual interaction helps those matchups, right? So adding extinction event is like pretty low opportunity cost and does help you a lot against green decks. Yeah. And I, th I think these decks did a really nice job of evolving in unexpected ways. Like if you asked me to build a Demir control deck at the start of the format, I wouldn't have built anything resembling this. I mean, I think we had mostly written off uh, solemn simulacrum as boomer magic and something that just didn't really hold up well in the present era. But you're right that the home for this deck is as the best Ugin deck. And it's funny that a teamer quote unquote ramp deck, and you can contest that classification. That's fine. But, but it's funny, like a ramp deck shows up at the same time as this control deck. And it's the control deck that is actually built to be the Ugin deck in the format. But there has to be one. There has to be an Ugin deck to hold this stuff down. And it's going to be a very battlefield-centric approach to the metagame, you need to find space for Ugin. And that's why, like, you know, you start to see, like, oh, if people are going to cast eight mana spells, then I really want to be counterspell guy again. But it just doesn't pan out because these decks also have a earlier method of getting onto the battlefield in things like Ashiok and just Solemn can do beatdown stuff. Like, it, it matters. You won't win many games that way, but the card you will win games with when it comes to beatdowns is Crawling Barons, which is a card I just absolutely love. And I think it's such a good finisher for these control decks. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to feel about that card when it was released, but then you see it in play for the first time and you're thinking yeah. about like, oh, what can my opponent have to actually deal with this thing? And like the list is not very long. No, the format definitely turned to sorcery speed removal in a lot of ways. And also just the 
safety of the card. Like you don't have to commit to spending your mana on your turn to force through damage until it's a done deal. Like put 10 counters on the thing, wait till you can completely support it and that's fine. And it almost feels like, what is it? Nephilia Drown Yard? Is that, is that the mill land from back in the day? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty similar. Yeah, so you, you just get to spend your mana on your opponent's turn. You hold up the threat of counter magic all the time. You never expose yourself and then your land wins the game in a very swift swoop. And I, I really like that pattern for all control decks, but it especially works here with the Ugin deck where you have another way to participate in the game. Like you can just be a turbo Ugin deck, play it on turn six, turn seven, and that'll hold the fort against a lot of other stuff in the format. Yeah, and then you just have Dark Depths ticking down. Certainly yep. a better way to spend your mana than Castle Vantress. Yeah, more Castle Vantress hate here on the podcast. Your weekly dose of Castle Vantress hate checking in right now. Dude, it's just my, my brand at this point. I agree. And I, I agree with you here. It's not it's not even close. There's no question. I am happy to play Crawling Barons over something like Castle Vantress. You actually make meaningful progress on winning the game. What about the Urian decks that are still around? Like, basically all of them are just Doom Foretold decks, which makes a lot of sense. There's like Trail of Crumbs and the Great Henge, and this is a nice, clean answer to the weird permanence. And I, like yes. the format is it's just kind of like lacking on those. It is, but I, I also think... So here's my read on these decks, and I said this uh, in my article that I put out this week. I think the Doom Foretold variants, be it Mardu or Esper, or however you want to build it, were an excellent choice like two weeks ago. And they do a really good job of punishing things like Trail of Crumbs or you know Rakdos Battlefields or... Uh, Gruul, I, I think like they're they're strong against Gruul. Anything that's trying to like just put a bunch of creatures on the battlefield, you're pretty happy doing Doom Foretold stuff against. But I think the metagame has moved, and I, I think it got to a place where now Doom Foretold isn't really a threat to these larger decks. Like I don't want to be on the Doom Foretold side against Ugin because Ugin can undo a lot of your work. And sure, Doom Foretold's an answer to Ugin and. You know, they won't put too many other permanents onto the battlefield. Although with these decks, that's not even necessarily true because you do have Omen of the Sea and Solemn thanks to your reliance on Urian. So it, it's not even clear that against things like Pure Control, you actually still have a good answer in the form of Doom Foretold, not to mention they have Counter Magic. So I think they had a home as a way to punish Mono Green Food, as a way to punish Gruul when those were just like the top two decks. But now that this new factor has entered the metagame in the shape of Team Adventures, and Demir Control, I'm not buying it anymore. I, I I just don't like the positioning of Doom Foretold into this tournament for this weekend. Yeah, it's weird because, so, Mono Green, Teamer, Adventures, and Demir Control, I would have expected to be a larger portion. They are like 17%, yes. Yes. 11%, 10% respectively. And I, I think those are the three best decks. They, they should be at the top yeah. to me. And so Gruul is 24%, Demir Rogues is 17 and then it looks like the Doom Foretold decks are like 11. So, I mean, you, you said that that would have been a good choice a couple weeks ago. Well, this metagame is kind of two weeks ago. It is. It is. And that's what's weird about it. I don't know what to make of that. Is it like, did I people mean, not buy into the SCG results? Did their testing not bear out that these were real decks? Because that was not my experience. Like all these decks checked a bunch of boxes for me and seemed very, very strong. Submitting a week early, I mean, that might have Maybe. something to do with it where these new decks are coming out and 
you're you're kind of like locked in on gruel or something, or it's also a, a two format tournament, right? So like maybe you're spending a lot of time trying right. to get an edge in historic. So yeah, and information is moving in weird ways too in this moment. I think we shouldn't lose track of that. Like there was a pretty having played like a bunch of PTs in the past, there was a pretty clear ebb and flow to the information. Like you could get a sense of what everyone was thinking all the time. It just came out through articles and through, you know, play on moto. You just start to see a certain trend and then you're like, okay, I think everyone, the collective hive mind is thinking about this format in this fashion. And usually I'd show up at a PT and I'd be right. I don't feel like I can do that anymore. Like, I don't know how you feel about reading what percentage of, of a metagame are going to be, but I'm, I'm just routinely off at this point and it feels very weird. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of ways to read various trends, but you're not going to get it all right. And a lot of it is because people are getting their information from, you know, wildly different places, right? So if you like watch streams versus like only hang out in Discord with your friends versus like read SCG or whatever, or play Just SCG watch YouTube. tournaments. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot I mean, of different, a lot of different channels. And under ideal circumstances, you know, you try and do like a little bit of everything to try and have a more complete picture of what everyone is thinking, but you can't predict necessarily where humans are going to get their information from and what they're going to decide is correct and what they're going to filter out is incorrect. No, very good point. And I, I did used to feel like I was more successful at that, but it was always a guessing game. Like you never had certainty when you were making those predictions. I, I just think my predictions have gotten markedly worse in this era. Well, say you're struggling with that and you don't necessarily know what people are going to be doing. I think it makes more sense to then turn around and register something like rule. Okay. That's a totally fair read on the situation. You're like, I, I don't know exactly what the metagame is going to be. This is pretty solid against everything. Let's go. Can you make that argument for mono green or do you think there are some real holes with that deck? I think mono green definitely has a little bit more equity to gain in certain metagames than gruel does, but it's still a relatively safe choice. Like you're, you're proactive. You're doing a lot of the same stuff as far as, you know, presenting like a clock first and then having an engine later, but you're maybe like less versatile, I guess I would say just because the gruel deck has, better options being in two colors. You actually have like ways to interact with people and maybe better sideboard cards, stuff like that. So gruel overall is kind of like a safer choice. I want to get your opinion on something. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure where I saw this. Someone was making the argument on Twitter. I think it might've been Ari. I, I apologize if I'm not crediting the right person here, but someone was arguing that because of the virtually flat, payouts for this PT and the focus on really spiking an event to be able to put yourself in like certain brackets within the rivals league or to have a chance to compete in the rivals league. You're extremely incentivized to take high risk chances in these tournaments. And you should try and be like, you know, in the past you put up an 11 and five finish or whatever it is, 12 and four in a PT and you get invited to the next one. And that was always your goal. You keep your train rolling or you accumulate points over time. And you know, you're going to have a lot of events where now you're more incentivized to spike. Does that change your philosophy at all on bringing gruel to this tournament? This is funny. Did, do you know if 
uh, Paulo saw that tweet? I don't know. I don't. Because know. I don't, I don't that, remember the specifics behind it. I I remember Paulo rallying against claims like this, where it's like, you know, you you have to spike in something like a Grand Prix or whatever, right? You have to go thirteen and two to top eight uh, towards the end of the GP cycle or whatever, and he was always just like, no, you just play the thing with the best ri- win rate. Like there, there is like no concept of, of spiking, right? I mean, especially in standard, it's very difficult to get something that's like a bunch of 80-20 matchups in a row. Like regardless, you are still almost certainly better off playing a thing that's like a 55% win rate. Right. Yeah, I, I've certainly seen these arguments uh, rehashed a bunch of times. And I think mathematically that is borne out, but also it supposes a lot. Like it supposes that you can't make accurate metagame predictions. And we just said, we can't in this scenario. So there, if that's the case, then yes, uh, default to whatever has the best win rate. But the concept of best win rate isn't static, right? The best win rate, win rate will always be determined by what the metagame is. And if you're doing like, I remember the, when I was first introduced to the concept of range in poker, it started changing the way I thought about magic metagaming because you can reach new mathematical conclusions. If you're like, the metagame is 30% to be this, 40% to be this, 30% to be this, and weigh those against each other. And there's like a mathematically correct deck you can reach in that scenario. Um, But all of your stuff has to be so accurate. And we've talked a bunch about how all of magic is just like small sample size, kind of making it up and playing Calvin ball with all your numbers and (laughs) using that to get to a place. So I don't know. I find these discussions really fascinating because everyone has their own opinions and I, I do really see both sides of it. I think, I think we had opposite approaches to being introduced to range. And I think this, this might make a good podcast topic. I, I wrote an article about this a while ago. It should be free on star city at this point. And it was basically like the reason that I was so good at PTQs and SCGs was because I was very good at preparing for ranges of things and not just like, well, I want to beat, you know, I don't know, I'm looking at historic, right? I want to beat Rakdos and Sultai and Goblins. And then you just disregard everything else. It's like, no, I would do the thing where it's like you shave and abrade for a bedevil to like cover your bases against Azorius Control having a Planeswalker against you or something, right? And... That led me to huge amounts of success playing in those open tournaments because I was more prepared for the random stuff. Because it is very, very rare that your trajectory over a tournament is exactly what you expected it to be. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're you're talking about like, I don't know, you know, prepping for people's like narrowest ranges or whatever. And I'm just like, no, I'm gonna try and be as good against everything as I possibly can. I, I think we're both trying to seek out ways to exploit what people do and get the best win percentage. Overall. Right. Yeah. Right. Like an op, an optimal application of range would contemplate both those scenarios and reach the correct decision with both of those being possible. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, sure. That's, that is probably more along the lines of what I was doing to be honest. Right. Yeah. Uh, because obviously first and foremost, I'm tackling the, the bigger decks in the field and then worrying about the other stuff. But I don't know, man, I, I think that 
there, there are just so many instances of me winning opens where like mono red is quote unquote, not a deck. Right. And then I like play against it in the finals or something. Yep. And it's like, there are so many people who would have lost in my spot, but I was a little bit more cognizant of the 1%. Yeah. I, I think that's a really, really good approach, especially when you're leveraging a skill advantage as well. I, I think it's always wise to just like prepare for as much as possible. Uh, I could make the joke and say, well, I wouldn't go that far or whatever, but yeah, you're right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't know, man, for, for something like this, uh, like the, the standard format, it, it looked like it was being solidified again, but if you knew that the metagame was going to be this wide, I would try and do a similar thing where it's like, first and foremost, I want to beat green decks, right? And then I would want to have some sort of plan against everything else, whether it's just like, you know, something that my deck naturally does or is naturally good at that can prey on the weaker stuff or maybe selecting a strat that is naturally good against green decks so that I can focus a little bit more on the micro against everything else. Right. And that's kind of what leads me to like Teamer Adventures or Demir and less on the the quote unquote safe choices like gruel and mono green. Yep. Yeah. That all tracks. Be interesting to pick the brains of some of the folks who did end up on the gruel side of things, because it's so hard for that to be a bad choice. It's just such like a proactive, powerful deck. And I, I get wanting to go that way. And the advantage of experience is worth a lot too. Like that deck has been a lot around for a while. If you have been playing a bunch of gruel, you probably know all the sideboard tricks, you know, all of your options, you know, your plan somewhat, and you found ways to beat most of what's happening. So that can't be discounted either. Right. There's inherent value there for sure. And if we're talking about the concept of metagaming in standard in this day and age being nebulous, and you don't know exactly what to do and you don't want to make any hard reads because you know that you're pretty likely to get it wrong. Gruel is kind of like a safe choice in that it can't be that wrong, right? Like you're right. you're not going to have like a bunch of 20% matchups. Uh, you might have some 40% matchups, but it's not going to necessarily tank your entire tournament based on that choice. So if you don't know the answer, I think that that's a fine way to go, even if it might not be the thing that could potentially maximize your win rate. Yeah, I, I will say though, like a huge part of the appeal to Demir Control for me is that I feel like the deck is being built in a fashion now where it's got some of the same stuff going on. It's just a bunch of like proactive, powerful cards with this control engine behind it. And taking the deck in that direction has really done a lot to improve its standing in my eyes. Because Demir Control has been around in this format. Like from the beginning, I, yeah. I remember seeing Demir Control this. And definitely, I definitely more counterspell heavy and stuff yes. like that. But yeah. Yes, yes. And I, I really didn't like those lists because I felt like they were built with a lot of holes. But I feel like the deck, be, as it's being built now, it's closed up almost all of those holes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still pretty exploitable. I, I would assume that if you're doing something like Demir Control, you're just expecting people to not play Rogues, right? Which probably. I th- which I probably, think would be but, fair. Yeah, I also don't think that matchup is like, it depends how they build the deck at this point. And like I said, if you're spending a bunch of slots on low Mages, then that seems much worse. And now you've kind of got a chance as the Demir player. Not what you want to play against, but like, I don't know. I, I think you can find good plans against them. Surprisingly good plans, actually. 
Well, fair enough. So you're you're Demir guy. That's your your called shot. I think so. Yeah, I, I think I'm Demir guy for this week. And, and like I said, other reasonable choices, uh, Mono Green Food and t- Teamer Adventures would be the other two at the top of my trio. But it feels like a good time for Demir to come back. It's been too long since I got to cast my control friends. Fair enough. All right, on to historic. <laughs> Biggest deck, Rakdos and Joan Sacrifice at 30%. Next is Sultai slash four color mid range, pretty close to 30%, also 28. Goblins at 12.5%. And then uh, Azorius Auras, Azorius Control, Colorless Ramp, Demir Control, rounding things out. This is, this is just the same metagame as like months ago. Well, we're in a quasi-eternal format at this point. Uh, certainly, we've added some new cards, but we banned some of those new cards immediately, probably correctly mm, so. Fair. There also is just a weird thing with Historic where it's really hard to generate inertia in the meta metagame and get people to pick up new stuff or to really change their deck that much. Like, if you're a Sultai slash four-color player... Again, a lot of options. You know that deck. You've kind of seen it all. You are, again, a quote-unquote control deck with a nice burst of proactivity. It's hard for you to be bad against anything. You just have game against absolutely everyone. Uh, so I see why people go in that direction. And I would say a lot of the same things about the Rakdos slash Jun setups. Now, that being said, there are some Jun decks in this tournament that I hate, like, hate them and do not want to see them registered for this event. I, I think some people have actually done some pretty hard missteps with their read on the format. But for the most part, if you build in a more classic way, I, I think it's hard to mess it up too bad by going down that road. Yeah, I saw, I, I think the lowest creature count I saw was 23 in a collected company deck. How? How is what kind of wizard, blessed life are you living where you can possibly have 23 creatures in your collective company deck it's funny too because this is not a deck where you can collect a company hit one creature and be like relatively satisfied no not at all i mean sometimes you hit two and you're like well i didn't really put anything together here like it's not i don't know you're, you're not picking your creatures for their inherent strength they're designed to be used in tandem with other things so exactly exactly it so if you collect a company into a mayhem devil and you're already set up then that's great Great. obviously the problem is is that these decks are playing collected company to try and get a two-for-one because a lot of the other format is focused on interacting with them and killing their stuff yep and then you make it so your collected companies are very likely to hit one creature i don't get it don't get it at all. And I I really don't prefer the Jun builds in general. I would have kept it cleaner Rakdos. No surprise to anyone who listened to our podcast. Uh, apparently nobody participating in this tournament listens to our podcast. So no no brave takers on the Bomat Courier setup. Jerry, what do you think about people not listening to you anymore? Because I, I know you and I, I know your preparation has not changed for magic. I know you think about it just as much. I know... You care just as much. I know you have broken formats in recent memory and you continue to kind of evolve things. And if I think we rewind the clock a year and a half ago and you did a whole podcast on the deck you were playing in the Pro Tour 
probably a bunch of people pick it up. Now nobody picked it up. What is your opinion on that? I don't know. So you're you're talking like a year and a half ago. Uh, Also around that time, if there was someone who was playing in the Pro Tour who was like an established figure, like gold or above, that told me that they listened to my podcast, I I would be very surprised. And that that happened with a, a few different people. Like basically, if if you're like gold and above, those people consume like very specific amounts of content. You know, like mm-hmm. maybe maybe they'll read like Apollo article or whatever, but they're not usually devouring like everything on Star City. And a lot of the people who are playing on the Pro Tour like didn't really listen to podcasts at the time. So. Some of that has changed slightly. Like I, I know that like Andrea Mangucci was the funniest about this because he was like, hey, I, I, knew, I knew that you did this podcast, but I never listened to a podcast. I finally listened to yours and it's like actually really good. I, I really enjoyed it. And then the next time I saw him, he was like, dude, I listen to podcasts all the time now. That's all I do is just <laughs> listen. You just like, you know, tried to discover new podcasts and found a lot of things that he liked. So th- there are things like that, that that happen where people actually get exposed to podcasts and are just like, oh, you know, like there are ways for me to work this into my schedule and consume some content or at least, you know, have two people talk about magic, which is like a thing that a lot of magic players like to participate in anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. And the more and more that happened, the more it surprised me. But whether or not those people listen to me, you know, that, that's still up to them. Right. And I don't know. There's like a certain amount of hubris involved, right? You're just like, all right, I'll listen, I'll listen to what you say, but I'm not necessarily going to like, you know, take it as gospel or anything. Like all these people still have their own experiences to go back on. And I don't know. I, I think people could probably <laughs> benefit to listen to me more, but like they shouldn't listen to me all the time. Yeah. I mean, you certainly get things wrong, just like everyone gets things wrong. And that's, it would be crazy not to acknowledge that. I, I just feel like, I don't know. Like I was there on the SCG tour during 2011, 2012. I wasn't like a regular participant, but anytime it was within three or four hours, I was likely to show up. And I know it was just like everyone coming to you and asking for deck lists all the time. And that's generally what would happen. And everyone would sit down and there'd be 12 people in the tournament playing your list and four would top eight. And that's how it went. And I, I don't think all that much has changed about like your quality as a deck builder or your desire to break formats. I think that's all still there. It's just, you're not participating in the organized play. And it's just strange how like that has, it feels like that has become a disqualifying mark against you, despite the fact that nothing else has changed. I don't, I don't think so necessarily. Like interest in magic has certainly waned for a lot of reasons. But I don't even think like a lot of people would, you know, do exactly as we said or whatever. I don't feel like that number has necessarily gone down. Okay. I don't know. My read on it is different, but maybe I am just coming at it from a different angle and a a different, honestly, like a different experience set. Like your experience set is kind of being part of the entrenched player base where I always approached it as an outsider and like, information from people like you was extremely, extremely, extremely valuable to me because one, I didn't have time to participate in the way I wanted to. Two, I respected your opinion. So I was almost reliant on you in a lot of situations. I don't know. I don't know that I get the same feel that people 
uh, look to content creators in the same way. And maybe that's a good thing. Like maybe that's just net positive that there's more people who are willing to take their own shots and like, but then why are we doing this? Why are we well, here? I don't know. I have a good time. I, I like I said, if, <laughs> I mean, I enjoy myself obviously. Yeah. But. If, if nobody listened to us, I'd, I'd probably still show up to talk magic with you every week. It's like just part of my routine now, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I have asked myself that question before. Don't get me wrong. Like in moments where I feel like I'm screaming into the void, I'm like, what am I doing this for? And it's, it's sometimes hard to find an answer, but uh, I think enough people, enjoy just hanging out with us for a conversation that even if they never played a deck we produced, we're still a net positive in their lives. So uh, I'm fine with that. All right. So two things. I think the disconnect is that you think the number went down of people Mm. who listen to me. And I think the number was always low. Okay. So I think Uh, maybe I'm just talking about my own experience. Maybe I don't listen to you anymore. Maybe that's what I'm actually saying. Dick. (laughs) <laughs> Dude, you, you played my Bomac Couriers. I did. I did. I enjoyed uh, the Bomac Couriers. The other thing is, and this has been true for a long time, like if I were to win an open, people would copy that deck list. Yes. If I were to post a deck list doing all the same work and not go to the open, people would not copy it. Yep. And if I do a podcast where I'm like, yo, this deck is dope versus post a screenshot with me being like top 300 mythic the the amount of like difference between how far that information gets and how likely people are to copy that deck is dramatically different like you need to post the mythic number next to the deck list otherwise people don't care you need to post that you 5-0 to daily or like way back in the day that you 4-0 to daily or people don't care that's always been true Sure. And honestly, I get that because there's so much information about magic. You need to build in some filtration mechanisms or you'll just get bogged down. So I I don't begrudge anyone for taking that approach. There's there's some degree of filtration you have to actively use or you will never get anywhere. Like maybe don't take my deck list exactly card for card. Right. But the things that I'm saying about how to build decks or approach things like those are pretty true. (laughs) Maybe people should listen to those more. Yeah, I, I saw some of that going through these lists where I it just felt like people were kind of on the wrong axis, which is why the question came up, particularly when it came to things like the sacrifice decks. I, I thought we did a nice job laying out how we like to approach playing them. And I, there's just a lot of decks that are trying to be bigger, like a lot of Corval, Trail of Crumbs type stuff. And I don't know how you do that when there is this Uro Hydroid Crisis shaped monster looming over the format to say nothing of your sharn which right. is like the the ko and we can get to that if you want to talk about that i i don't really understand the decision to exclude your sharn from these sultai slash four colored decks in my experience i have not been impressed with sultai over four color like i see them as basically two sides of the same coin but a tremendous advantage with almost no downside coming from the addition of your sharn I think you're kind of saying the same thing. So like people are trying to do bigger things in their sacrifice decks, which are still going to lose to Uro Crisis mm-hmm. a lot of the time, right? Mm-hmm. At that point, why do you need Yasharn? Yasharn is kind of like training wheels and it's like, yeah, it, it shuts them down real good, but is it actually worth the splash? I think the answer to that is yes, because it's good against a lot of different stuff you know, trying to get the mana 
to cast it into your deck is really not all that difficult when you're playing 28 lands already. And, you know, then there are some other people who are like siding to Kotli Honor Guards and things like that against Goblins, which I think is also pretty reasonable, you know? Mm. Uh, so I don't think the opportunity cost is super high to play the pig. It just isn't. But if your goal is to have like a very good, very consistent deck that is probably going to beat up on the sacrifice decks anyway, then cool. Uh, it could also be a matter of kind of like what you were talking about before, people not really paying attention to SCG events, people certainly not paying attention to us. And just being like, oh, like sacrifice isn't that good. I don't need to play the pig. I think as a sacrifice or say goblins player, if I know I have to beat Sultai, I can engineer my deck in a way to do so. And I will. But the problem gets more complicated with your Sharn. And you get to steal a lot of game ones, which I think is super important. Again, like you said, it's always going to be a cost benefit analysis and i i just think the cost is so low that i am pretty squarely on team yasharn i don't know if you saw on twitter but i also posted uh all the foil full art yasharns i bought this week so maybe i'm just trying to actually hype my investment um, <laughs> by putting the card over but no no i actually do agree it it's extremely strong and interesting how i i don't think we've heard the last from that card in any format like i think it's time and standard will probably come and I think it has a very real role to play throughout its history in both modern and legacy. And that's why I'm so high on it. But it, it also fits into this format very squarely. Yeah, I mean, historic is just the right speed for it, right? Mm -hmm. Modern, yeah, I could buy it if there is something that it incidentally hoses. And that happens a lot with historic. Like, yes, it is good against sacrifice, but it's also solid against goblins too. You know, they do a decent amount of sacrificing to try and get mucks us into play earlier and then there's the random stuff like neoform right yep uh i'm less likely to buy it in legacy but i mean it doesn't take much right it's like all it has to be is like a green sun zenith target in a veteran explorer deck or something exactly that's exactly it. it just needs to cover some angle for some deck and the the tools in legacy are so specific that if you can see a novel use for a card it will generally find a home. Like just having four toughness body can matter a lot of the times in legacy. So yeah, the context is all there on the card for sure. So I think there are zero Bomek Urgers in all of these sacrifice decks. Agreed. And it's like, zero. okay, okay, that's fine. You know, y'all, y'all are adults mostly. You're allowed to make your own decisions. But uh gutter bones? Really? Not a Gutter Bones fan. Really? Unlike Tiny Bones, which we are a large fan of here on the podcast. Big, big fans. Big fans of Tiny yeah. Bones. Gutter Bones. That's, Less valuable that, bones. Dude, that's a card that when I was playing this deck, I would side it out against literally everyone because it, it was basically just a placeholder. It was like, I kind of need stuff to do on the cheap, kind of need stuff to do on turn one, but this thing is not good, and you just take it out against everyone. Bowman's actively good, y'all. What, what are you doing? And then if you want to make the argument that like, oh, it's maybe like kind of bad in the mirror because of Mayhem Devil, everyone's playing Skyclave Shade instead of Scrap Each Grounder. Yeah, that that is the one that is really wild to me. Uh, we kind of went off last week about how important everything that Scrap Each Grounder does is to, to its role in this deck and how much of an unlock it was and how Skyclave Shade sort of underdelivered in a lot of spots. And some people prefer it like there's three to one breakdowns in some decks of three skyclave shade and, and no, there's one there's four zero there's four zero too uh, i i don't know 
I, I just don't know. Uh, three like one. Like we said, three reach one. your own conclusions. That's fine, but that's a wild one to me. Three one, I respect because that's at least saying like, okay, these are two cards. They do different things. They have pros and cons. But like, maybe having a mix is better than just playing four skyclave shades. And it's like, well, you're you're right. It should be it should be four scrap heaps and zero shades probably. But like, at least you're recognizing that like. The, the the one scrap heap has more value than the fourth shade, so it's like okay, you're you're almost there. Uh, yeah, there's something something odd going on with the sacrifice lists in this tournament. I don't know how they're ultimately going to fare. It felt like they stood still since we saw the deck sort of break back onto the scene, and I just think they didn't do enough to cement edges anywhere that I, I believe in them right now. I think the deck needed to evolve a little bit, and I think it kind of just stood pat going into this week. Yeah, I mean, it still has the Yasharn problem, right? And there there are some players, uh, uh, Michael Bonda was the one that sticks out because he his was one of the first lists that I saw because he posted on Twitter, and he had Chandra in the main deck. And it's like, that is very cognizant, the fact that Sultai is going to be big, you're going to face Yasharns in game ones, and we talked about this last week where I didn't think that it was necessarily time to start having main deck answers to Yasharn, but you should definitely load up on answers in the sideboard. And a lot of players just did neither. Like they still don't have game one answers and they also have like very few answers in, in the sideboard. And that I just don't understand. Like, I mean, I guess people are cutting it. So maybe you can get away with that to some degree, but I wouldn't, you know. Yeah, I would not either. And uh, like like you mentioned, there are some people who have made appropriate concessions, especially when you could just do it with Chandra. It's so easy to, to make that concession. And I, I think that card's so good in so many matchups. It's strange to see people just kind of stand pat after they had put a target on themselves with, with a good Reacto sacrifice finish. So I wanted more from this archetype coming into this tournament. That's one of the big points of disappointment I had uh, with the list here was that this deck had a real chance to evolve and it just kind of stood still. That's fine. We'll, we'll leave the innovations to the players grinding it out on ladder that are, you know, doing a lot of good work are very, very good at what they do. And for some reason have like no roadmap to get to play in these tournaments. Right. Yeah. Unfairly so. Uh, goblins? Goblins is goblins. Uh, again, I think there's some concessions being made in some instances. You see some Chandra's main deck, certainly some more card advantage creeping its way into the main deck. So uh, good adaptations from goblins. And I think goblins is just a deck that will stay solid throughout. It, it's going to be around 51% win rate every single time. And if you can lock that in, you'll take it in a bunch of instances. Uh, what about... The cool stuff. You want to talk about some cool decks? Yeah, what's what's really impressed you amongst these? Well, okay, so first of all, let me say that Ken Yukihiro and, you know, to a lesser extent, Shota, I'm not super surprised by this, like Shota doing it, but they're both playing Sultai. Uh-huh. So that's bad. Because Ken, Ken's like the person who's supposed to be playing the weird stuff, right? The deck's a, a little offbeat. Like, there's a few odd decisions in it. Yeah, of course, but like... But it didn't. It didn't go full. It didn't go full, Ken, for sure. Yeah, come on, Ken. What are you doing? BBD and Riser, uh, Shintaro Ishimura, were the only two people to play Kethis, and we're recording this 
at the time when the historic rounds are done. Uh, so I was like, oh, cool. Like they have, they have sweet deck lists. They independently decided that maybe this is going to be the deck for them. Uh, BBD went 03, Riser went one and two. Womp womp. You know, I'm a big Kethis fan. And uh, my experience with this deck, every time I go to it in historic is something is lacking. It, it's just not quite there. My experience is Tashar doesn't work. And I rage quit. And lament the fact that I spent like 15 wild cards building this deck. There's, there's that too. Yeah. I, I wish this deck had more to offer and these lists look really clean, really good, really interesting. Uh, the unburial rights in BBD's deck, I think is quite cool actually, but still I, I just haven't seen what I need to, to buy into Kethis yet. Yeah. I think BBD had an unburial rights the last time he played this deck too. That sounds correct to me. Yeah. Uh, another cool deck. Wasn't sure how good this was going to be. Uh, Kowalski playing mono white nine lives, but I don't know. Maybe Solemnity is good enough against Hydroid Crisis, where it's like a reasonable card. And uh, I think Kowalski started two and one. But like this is a format where Wrath of God is pretty good. Uh, he's he's got Grafdigger's Cage main deck, and then this combo that a lot of people can't break up. So this is the type of thing that you were talking about earlier, where it's like you know you're just trying to spike. So this makes me think of Modern, which is weird because I understand this deck doesn't exist in Modern, but let me explain why. It kind of does. For a long time, yeah, you could maybe you do it with like uh, Enduring Ideal or something like that, right? But. Anyway, for, for a long time, the modern metagame, and this is prior, I'd say basically prior to like War of the Spark, really, where more mid-range slash control decks really started to pick up a ton of tools. Or you can draw the line at like Modern Horizons. That's a reasonable point as well. Um, but for a long time, the correct thing to do in modern was to find a hyper-linear approach that just nobody accounted for. And either through like the types of permanents they could deal with or just strategically, they didn't have meaningful ways to interact with you. That's like how I got to playing ad nauseum at a modern PT. And I, I think you can go up and down the list of like Storm having really good PTs and all these different linear approaches to magic that just go in a little bit different direction when the format is too focused on graveyards or too focused on stack-based interaction or too focused on creature removal, that's the time you just find a new way to go in a very, very linear direction. The, and, the easy version of this rule was like, if people are playing like five graveyard hate cards, they're probably not playing artifact hate cards. So you play affinity. And affinity, then if people are yep. playing a bunch of stony silences and shatters and stuff. Yeah. Then you play dredge and it's like, yep. Modern just did that dance over and over again. You're absolutely right. Yep. And that was always my approach to modern. And I think cards like Uro have done a lot to prevent this from being successful in most formats. And maybe you're having that effect a little bit on historic where you can't just rely on going down one axis. But if people can't answer nine lives, like, this deck does a lot of good things, and Solemnity is a meaningful card in this format as well. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not just playing Solemnity, but when you can do something interesting with it, that's when these decks become appealing. And again, it's like the ad nauseum thing. Like, Phyrexian on Life being a good card in the format at the moment I chose to play it was very, very important in my decision. So if you're picking up some points with Solemnity as well, I, 
I think you could talk me into playing this deck. Like, I think this might actually be a pretty good choice for this tournament. I would play it in a tournament. I would not play it on ladder. Think of how long the games would go. Uh, way too long. Yeah, yeah, nobody has time for that these days. But if the stakes are high enough, you can you can get me to suffer through a lot. So fair. All right, Kai Buddha <clears throat> playing a Sultai Paradox Engine deck. He started three zero. This deck might be tight. This is uh, Lanor Elves Emery, Kinnan Bonder Prodigy, a Michael Majors favorite. Yeah. Uh, some Moros, some Tamios, a couple Jace Wielder of Mysteries. Balaged Recovery, Mindstone, Paradox Engine, Mox Amber, Chromatic Sphere, a Prophetic Prism, a couple Fatal Pushes, 19 Land, Sideboard, Interaction, typical Sultai stuff. This deck is is sweet. This is exactly the type of nonsense that I try to do in Historic and fail every time. But I was never really trying Paradox Engine alongside Emery and with Kinnan. You could just make a bunch of mana. Yeah, this deck, as soon as I saw it, I'm actually surprised that Majors has never sent us something like this, because I feel like he's sent a lot of Kinnon decks our way, uh, really loves the card, and for a good reason. Like it, It's powerful, particularly in this format where you have Chromatic Sphere available to you. So I don't know what to make of this deck. I'm not going to give any kind of opinion on how good it is. But again, if you're looking for ways to sidestep what the format's about, it's often going to be through like a combo-centric approach like this. And I don't know if there's actually a hard combo here. Is there like an actual just win the game on the spot setup? Uh, I mean, like Emery, Manorok, Kinnon, Paradox Engine, Chromatic Sphere. So it's not so much a combo. It's just when you put enough pieces together, you'll be able to do anything you want. Yeah, you just you just draw your deck, right? Right. Draw okay. your deck, make infinite mana, and then uh, kill them. That all sounds just delightful. And I am sure that I will be virtually sleeving this up on the ladder for a few games later this afternoon. But I, I do think like this is what the historic format is still capable of and kind of what I thought we might see coming into this PT because it is a larger field for a historic tournament. There's enough on the line where it felt like this was the moment we could really see some strong innovation in this event. And the innovation was honestly very limited. But as we mentioned with Gregor's deck, we mentioned with this deck, there's some things that have the potential to bear some fruit for sure in this field. I'm, I'm honestly going to be disappointed if Majors is not working on this deck right this second. Just already grinding. Uh, next deck, I actually have to find. Okay, well, let's just talk about this one. Brent Voss playing Esper Gift. Not a lot of God Pharaoh's Gift in this tournament. And Brent is doing some different stuff. Basically using Citrus Supplier and Minister of Inquiries to do the like fill your graveyard thing. But then instead of trying to cast Refurbish from hand, he's Unburial Writing. Scholar of the Lost Trove to get back a God Pharaoh's gift. And then you also have Gate to the Afterlife to get that. So an interesting take. Uh, Brent started one and two, but I, I I think that there's something here in fairer versions of this format. And it, it just feels like the format's like a little too fast. Then I don't like the fact that this version is like even more susceptible to things like Grapdigger's Cage. Right. Yeah, I think this is a cool idea. I am just surprised that there's no Azorius gift in this format. I actually think like the list that Piper Powell played to a top eight in one of the SCG events, I wrote about it in one of my articles. I was not a believer in God Pharaoh's gift in, in any setup in historic. The card has just not impressed me. The mono black list did nothing for me. Uh, I really didn't have high hopes for refurbish coming into the format, but I think Piper's list was really well built. And you saw again, like, 
a diverse array of game plans that the deck was capable of playing. And even like there was some backdoor beatdown stuff going on that seemed really appealing to me. So I was shocked actually to not see any Azorius gift in this field. I think that deck's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I think Piper is really good. Yes, I would agree with that as well. So I don't know how that translates as far as like how viable that deck is, but I mean, Piper also makes like a, a lot of very good deck decision choices. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in finding things in historic that are not like the top three decks, uh, that's definitely something you should check out. Mm-hmm. Uh, another interesting deck is from Moto Grinder, Aspiring Spike, playing Bant Control. And this is, this is, again, one of the weird things, weirdest things that I've seen in Historic, where this is just a bunch of Planeswalkers, Uro, Grow Spiral, a couple of Wrath of Gods, and then using Tail's End just as like a value counterspell in the format with Pact of Negation and also some Lotus Fields. Wild approach. I, again, haven't played this deck. Can't comment on how good it may actually be. But conceptually, I buy Tail's End as like a real card in the format that can make a big difference in a bunch of matchups. So that's a really good starting point when it's half engine, half just strong answer. I really like having access to that card. And then like Earl Growth Spiral can let you do a lot of things. And we're only doing one thing with it right now. We've decided like we do the Sultai stuff or the four color stuff, and we're going to use it to control the game, but it just covers so many game plans. And there is probably more space that has been underexplored thus far in the format that is about Uro and Growth Spiral. And I understand like not wanting to invest the time in sussing that out because there is already a very good Uro Growth Spiral deck. So like how much can you really gain uh, by shifting a small amount of your interaction or a small amount of your game plan. But uh, I think Aspiring Spike is showing us how much you can gain. You can gain a 3-0 at the PT uh, with a different approach to these decks. Yeah, I I mean, there's something to be said for like, why would you move away from Thoughtseize when Thoughtseize is one of the most powerful cards in the format? But also like those decks are, I mean, basically four color decks at this point and Mm -hmm. blue white control is a viable deck. So if you're like, well, how do I get your Sharn into blue white control? I feel like that would solve some of the issues. I could kind of see how you would end up in something like this, but then I don't know, like getting tails end in there as a value card, but also a thing that can like counter your pact or your Lotus field or keep your Uro around, you know, it's like got so much utility in the deck and this this is the type of thing where if you do the work and you actually, you know, figure out what's in the format, what you're trying to do, and yep. you don't dismiss anything, this is somewhere where you could end up. And I think that that's really sweet. And that's what I want to see more of out of Historic going forward. I agree with you. I think there is space for it. And uh, maybe it takes not a split tournament. Maybe it needs to be like a hard focus on Historic for a PT. I don't know what the rest of the PTs look like if there'll ever be a moment for just focus on historic or, you know, maybe the format just needs a little bit more time, a little bit more history under its belt, and then it'll start to develop those opportunities for more expressive deck building. But there are, there are moments of it here for sure. Last one. I'm going to tell a little story. Brian was looking through deck lists. I was uh, checking standings 
for the folks whose deck list I had already selected to, that I wanted to talk about. And Brian was like, yo, how's my, bo- my boy Carl doing? So I typed in Carl and I, I spelled it with a C and the only Carl that came up was Carlos Romau. Not who I was looking for. Although uh, nothing against <laughs> Carlos Romau. I, I hope he's having a fine tournament as well. Uh, I actually didn't look at how he was doing. Okay. I was just like, this is the wrong Carl. So <laughs> finally typed in Carl with a K, Carl Sarap. And I was like, six points. Carl's two and one. He's the only person in the tournament playing Rakdos Arcanist. And we saw this already with Salvato, right? One of the yeah. few people playing Arcanist and just doing well. People just don't like respect. That, they yeah, don't respect it. Just never it. has a bad performance. It's like completely solid. It has game against everyone. It's a ton of fun to play. Whatever. I, I've hyped this deck enough. I don't need to keep trying to sell people on it. You, you, I'm sure you've played it by now. You're either a believer or you're not. I, I continue to be a believer. Deck solid. Dude, I think there are just a lot of people who haven't played it. I don't know why. I mean, people love this style of deck. Uh, the economy would be my guess. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I, I've played a decent amount of things in historic, but definitely not as many as I would like. Like I'm, I'm probably just never going to play a game with goblins. It's just not going to happen. You owe it to yourself to live the, the Muxus life once or twice. Um, I'm trying to think what I haven't played with in historic. I feel like I've played a game with like everything. I'm having a hard time finding a blank spot. I mean, I haven't played like nine lives or any of these more obscure things, but like right. the the big players I've certainly touched at some point in the format. Dude, I'm just not going to spend 20 wild cards to play like five games with goblins. It's just not going to happen. They have, they have their hooks in me. I'm fully a magic arena whale. So they can <laughs> just have all my money. I've given up on trying to be reasonable with my arena investment. I kind of did the opposite where I even because before I would be like, all right, I put in some money, I like grind a bunch, and then I end up with a bunch of currency and I I wanted the the foils. I wanted the card styles, right? And I just mm-hmm. every time a card style pops up in the store, I'm just like, no, I'm just not doing it. I don't care that's ninety percent <laughs> off. I'm just yeah, not gonna I, buy I got it. off the card sto- styles. I stopped buying them. Like I, I basically styled out the first deck I played a lot of on Arena, which was yep. uh Simic nexus of fate yep and after that i n- actually never really bought foils or whatever the equivalent is ever again I-, I have bought a couple basic lands that i like but that's it yeah i i like them a decent amount i definitely don't like that they come from gems and like nothing else Yep. so yeah i think that was a very healthy decision for me was to just be like nah i'm just not gonna buy any more styles at least the tagline on the styles isn't like miss it and they're gone forever like they are with the secret layers. That's that's my point of anger today, by the way. I angrily tweeted about the the secondary tagline of the secret layers just saying the quiet part out loud and <laughs> yeah. threatening you with FOMO marketing on their their allegedly scarce product that they could just make at any point in time again. So you like how they release the numbers of like, oh, yeah, well, this Walking Dead secret layer that you didn't like sold really well. And it's like, yeah, we didn't like it because it's super predatory. And that yeah. just proves it. <laughs> it's designed. It's, it's only purpose is to sell extremely well. Like that is what it's built to do. If you fail at that, then it shouldn't exist for any reason because it's certainly not aesthetically pleasing or like beneficial to the long-term legacy of the game. It's strictly to generate a quick buck. So 
if you didn't do that, I don't know what to tell you. I think very few, pe- very few people were of the opinion that it would not sell well. Correct. You know? <laughs> Correct. I was very sure it was going to sell. Well, like, were, were, did you just kind of like hear fourth hand that people were mad on Twitter and that's just what you assumed the reason was? Because maybe you should delve in a little deeper. Yeah. Uh, my anger with Secret Lair continues to grow as time goes on, but... I know like they do bring some instances of joy to people, like people like seeing the arts. I, I am off it as an idea though. I, I think it'll long-term be a very harmful thing to magic. Did you see the the thread that I retweeted of Seb's? I don't believe so, no. Uh, so Seb McKinnon has his own secret lair. Not that I want to like advertise this stuff. I'm not going to buy them. I understand that, you know, if, if people want to buy them, that's cool. And I'll, I'll buy prints from Seb of like his art. Yeah. If I really like it. Yeah. You that, should do that. That makes sense to me. Uh, but it was basically just like how he had carte blanche to do whichever cards that he wanted. And rather than, you know, just like picking sweet cards, he was like, well, I want to tell a story. And then, you know, he told a story through flavor text and the arts and just like talks about the entire process of going through it and how he, you know, touched up the art to make it cooler and was very cognizant of like how it would look in the frame. So like, these are all the things that he had to change. And it's just like this really incredible thread where I think a lot of people are just like, you know, they look at the picture and it's like, okay, you know, that's cool or it's not or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, damn, like, this, this dude, this dude is good. He gets it. He cares. That's really cool. I, I will definitely check out that thread. And like I said, like that's the element where I know these things are going to bring some joy to some people. So I try not to like be a Grinch about it, but you know, we all have our Grinchy instincts and uh, <laughs> using a, a predatory tagline is definitely going to set off my alarm bells. Uh, dude, it's, it's why we don't do YouTube anymore. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, we had plenty of conversations. We'll peel back the curtain a little bit. We had plenty of conversations about our involvement with YouTube, and it just felt like we had to be participating in a way that made us both uncomfortable. Like we had to do things that were bordering on clickbait. I mean, beyond clickbait, honestly. Just like it, it's so it's clickbaity, but also YouTube trends negative. Yeah. They yep. are far more likely to promote your video if you have like a negative connotation or word in your subject line. Yep. And that's, yeah, that's, a good that's way not what it. we do. Yeah. It didn't feel good. And the stuff that we were getting really large responses to, we were usually like, not necessarily complain pieces, but like shocked pieces. Uh, a lot like, of our most banned. watched stuff was like emergency band stuff. Yeah. And it was the time when the emergency bands really started popping off that we were messing with YouTube and that stuff would get incredible engagement and introduce all new people to our brands and, felt kind of good, but then you realize that was the only thing that was actually getting engagement on the platform was us just being upset about stuff. And I don't want to be upset all the time. I want to look at the good side of things. And there is some good with the secret layer, but it's wrapped up in a pile of bad, I think. So yeah, there there are people who like them and that's great. Uh, They should make products that people like that also don't have the bad stuff attached, but you know, Uh, yeah, I would like that more, but, but money classic arena deckless answer but money uh yeah i i like i like youtube i, I like i like the idea of it right um but yeah in, in practice it, it did not work out for us and 
I don't know if there's a way to beat that, like based on how the system is set up. Like they would have to make some pretty drastic changes, I think. Yeah, it's it's odd. <laughs> it's odd being entrepreneurs who don't like being entrepreneurial because we are so painfully aware of how every single like entrepreneurial exchange is exploitative in some sense. Like there's always like you are supposed to be generating value with your performance or your time. And we're so keenly aware of that, that it often fights against our instincts of like, we should do this content or we should do this content and slows down a lot of our creative process for sure. Yeah. The, the bad part is like, man, I wish I had more money to do like X, Y, and Z or whatever. Right. Right. And then it's just like, well, here's a way that I could be more exploitative and make more money, but it's like, I don't want to do that. So It's like, I'm not, not really happy either way. Right. Yeah. The struggle is constant and uh, you know, it's, it's not unique to what we do either. Like I certainly felt it in the professional world as well. So I think everyone deals with it on a very regular basis. Yeah. But then they're, they're just like the people who, I mean, I guess this is like a good tie in, right? It's like the wizards of the coast thing, right? It's like, well, yeah, maybe they see secret layers as exploitative or whatever, but then they're just like, but, but dollar signs, right? Yeah. And yeah, then, I, then I don't even know that they're exploitative. They're just like designed to make money. And like, so is everything else they do. It's just this is a very, very forward application of the idea. Like it is all about money. Whereas it has always felt to me like magic has a heart and essence and a core. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much. And I've loved it for such a long time. It's also and one of the reasons lot. it has longevity, right? Exactly. And why it's been around. Exactly. And it feels in some ways that the secret layer stuff betrays a lot of those principles to me. That's just my read on it. You know, maybe it's thinking too hard about a children's card game. You know, we like to use that dismissive term. But magic is so much more than that to me and so many people I know that I'm I'm never going to dismiss these concerns out of hand. Like I, I do think there is a a beauty and a purity and a grace to the game that it, as it has existed for 20 some years. And I, I do see secret layers as like a challenge to that. <laughs> to, to kind of circle back. <laughs> one of the things that made me really mad is, is actually probably because they didn't include the tagline of like, get it now or they'll be gone forever. We're like, I bought some of the, the styles of the shocklands that I was using and then haven't been able, like, was never able to complete this. I heard if I get the other ones. <laughs> yeah. I just thought I'd be able to, like, you know, buy them like the rest. But it was, like, also just one of those things where it was, like, get them in the store now or else they'll be gone forever. So I would play, like, I don't know. I think I was playing, like, Teamer at the time, right? So I had those three sets of Shocklands. And then you try and play, like, Grixis or whatever and, you know, don't have the other one or something. It's like, what? This sucks. What a weird. Yeah, what a weird system. But got to make that FOMO. Well, if they did that, I would have bought them. That's the thing. They they didn't right. FOMO, so I didn't buy them, and then it made me mad. But, like, it's it's better for me, I suppose. Yeah, well, the other way it could have went is that you just, like, bought them all right off the bat from that point forward because you didn't ever want to experience that again. Yeah, well. But that's what this is. Like, <laughs> you can do it once, and, like, maybe you'll get some people, but you'll also make some people mad. And yeah, my experience now is just like, don't buy the styles. Yes. And I I am concerned that if you continue to do this in the magic space, that will be a routinely occurring thing where people just go, okay, I'm over this. 
I don't know. So now I see people that have all the styles and I'm like, respect, you know, a little bit of jealousy, but I'm just like, I am, I'm just not going to do that. I just can't. I'll, I'll play with my stupid steam vents and like no other Ravnica shock land in my deck or just <laughs> turn them off completely, which is also what I've been doing. Yeah. Wise idea. I'm glad you have overcome your problem. I am struggling with my own magic purchasing problems, but at the one thing I have stood firm on no secret layers in my house thus far. And I pretty committed to that idea that they won't ever enter. So yeah, I ain't got no secret layers. I don't know what it would take for me to buy one. It's just not going to happen. I don't think with you. Uh, and you're, you're also making like paper purchases a lot of the time, right? Like some, some Skyclave apparitions, some Yasharn, stuff like that. Like that's a good investment. Arena card styles, not a good investment. Yeah, that is, that is true. At least one you can kind of turn into liquid assets if you need to in a pinch. So. Game. Good luck.